Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. All right, we're going to get started. We have, you know, it's what, like a week from Halloween, and it just doesn't feel like it, right? It's too warm out. But I think we actually have, in a certain way, um, like a little bit of a Halloween theme. I mean, uh, you know, Fran is, is, a, is a fantasy writer, but Nathan writes horror, but I think they're both going to read stories that have to do with bones, if I'm not mistaken. So I think we definitely have a little bit of a Halloween theme going on, so that's cool. Anyway, my name is Matthew Kressel. I'm the co-host of Fantastic Fiction at KGB. The series is held here at the KGB bar on the third Wednesday of every month. It is always free. There's never a cover charge. All we ask is that you buy a drink, hard or soft, and tip your bartenders. They work very hard to keep you hydrated. Um, before I get on with uh, the upcoming readers, I just have an announcement from Tor Books. So uh, I'm just going to read the poster, because this is, this is new to me as it is to you. Tuesday, November 3rd, Word presents an evening. What? It's up, okay. It's upstairs at the Red Room. If you haven't been up there, it's a really cool jazz club right upstairs. Uh, November 3rd, Word Presents, Upstairs, an evening with Tor Books and Dark Circle Comics featuring Adam Christopher and Chuck Wendig. So I hope you're celebrating the launch of Adam Christopher's Made to Kill and The Shield with Chuck Wendig. So that's, uh, Wendig. So that's Tuesday, November 3rd, Upstairs. It's 7 p.m. 7 p.m. So, uh, anyone wants to take a look at that poster, I will uh, make that available. And also, there are flyers by the door. Also, I want to mention that uh, both authors' books are for sale in the back. Molly from Word Bookstore is selling uh, Fran Wilde's Updraft. It is her last appearance as a representative of Word, but hopefully not her last appearance here. Um, She's going to tour.com. Let's get them all. Uh, and Nathan Ballingrid's uh, book, North uh, Collection, North American Lake Monsters, is also for sale in the back. Um, next month, November 18th, Robert Levy and Kathy Koja. Robert is... December 16th, Elizabeth Hand and CS... she canceled. She canceled? So who do we have in place of her? Somebody and CSE Cooney. I'll, I'll I'll check it out. It's probably on my. I'll tell you at the break. We'll tell you at the break. January twentieth, Alana Meyer and Delia Sherman. February seventeenth, Carola Dibble and Gemma Files. March sixteenth, Rio Ewers and David Nickel. 
April 20th, Elizabeth Baer and Scott Lynch. May 18th, Ellen Clages and Victor Laval. So uh, we got an awesome 2016 lined up for, for you guys. Um, so I hope you'll join us for that. Um, our first reader tonight is Fran Wild. Uh, Fran's first novel, Updraft, recently published by Tor as a Library Journal debut of the month and a Publishers Weekly Fall 2015 Top 10 Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror book. Fran's poetry has been published in the Marlboro Review and Tor.com. Her short fiction has appeared in Asimov's Uncanny, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, and Nature Magazine. Her novella, The Jewel and Her Lapidary, will be published by Tor.com in spring 2016. Cloudbound, the next novel in the Bone Universe, takes wing in fall 2016. Here's Fran Watt. That goes down. Can you hear me? Did I shut it off? I think it shut off. Okay, there. Hi. Hi. Wow. Um, okay, before I begin, I'd like to thank Ellen and Matt, especially, because this is amazing, as always. Um, as well as everybody here at KGB and Word Bookstore. Um, I've, I've been among the KGB audience for a long time. I've been sitting where you are, sweating it out, and um, every single reader who has been up here from the first time I came with John Kessel, who is here tonight, oh my god, to, um, to every reader thereafter has been amazing, and the audience has been amazing, so I'm hoping that I can hold up my end of the bargain tonight. So. Updraft is a novel, it's my first novel. It's about a young woman in a city of living bone that rises high above the clouds. Her name is Kirit, and she breaks a law, is forced to make some hard choices, and in the process loses friends, encounters new enemies, and discovers her own strengths. When I talk about this book, I sometimes say it's a bit like Victor Hugo meets Italo Calvino with squid. <laughs> I've been reading Updraft since it released in September, and I've focused mainly on the first eight chapters, in part because there are monsters, and it's fun to explain why the book was almost titled Bob Gets Eaten on page two. <laughs> but the first scene I wrote for this book was a winged knife fight in a wind tunnel in a tower called the Spire, which is at the center of the city. This scene now takes place about halfway through the book, but it's one of my favorites. So I thought we're better to read a favorite and relatively unpracticed scene than live at KGB. <laughs> I've removed as many spoilers as possible, and there's no risk of anyone being eaten as far as I know. At least not during the reading, it's true. Nader. High on the council tier, as the sun brightened the spire, Singers dressed me in a white robe. They tightened my wing straps and whispered encouragements. They poured me chicory. I had been allowed several hours rest. It had not been nearly enough. Be fast, said an older brass-haired woman. Don't forget to look behind you, above and below too. I wish I had my father's lenses with their reflective mirror but I couldn't find them in the morning when I'd rushed back to my alcove 
and couldn't remember where I'd seen them last. When they finished preparing me, Wick bent low and whispered in my ear, be careful. I turned, eyebrows raised, he doubted me still? This challenge comes sudden. This is not tradition, you should have much more training and days to practice. Choose the weapon you know best. Be careful. He stepped away. Only for a moment did I feel his hand on mine when he pulled it from me. The challenger has chosen the bow as their weapon, said a young woman at my side. Her brown eyes were hemmed with silver tattoos against her olive skin. She cleared her throat, pulling my focus to the workbench, glittering with sharp edges. Glass knives with bone hilts, bone blades, spears, hooks. I pointed, making my decision. The young woman did not smile as she handed me my weapons of choice, knives. The worn bone hilts had comfortable grips wrapped in sticky raw spider silk. The blades were new, each a glass tooth so sharp it nearly hummed. Rummel watched from the edge of the council's balcony, Wick beside him. Mock pulled on my sleeve, suddenly at my side. The Windbeaters will help you. Look for strong gusts in the gyre. I looked down at him while the singer strapped the, chip, the triple sheath to my arm. What did you give them? He looked worried. You need help, Kirit. You're still learning. I had to give them your lenses. You haven't been using them much. My lenses, mock. But the singer securing my robes at the ankles hushed me. The challenge should reflect in silence. It is tradition. She finished binding my robes, and I walked quickly to Rummel and Wick. I let my wings unfurl, shimmering in the daylight. My foot sling dragged behind me, making a skittering sound on the tear floor. Other singers gave me a wide berth. Rummel held out a hand toward me, then gestured to the gyre. Your birthright, Kirit. You've proven that. Rummel's words shredded the doubt Wick's worries had laid down. I could do this. Below us, a white-robed challenger waited. I couldn't see them on the down tower balconies, but I knew they must be close. Hello, Siri. I couldn't see them on the down tower balconies. That was really good. <laughs> but I knew that they must be close, if not already in the gyre. The challenger has demanded answers we cannot give. They have threatened to rouse the towers against the spire. Worse, Rummel paused and stared at me. They've broken laws in the past. You will stop them for the city's sake. Behind us, singers stood together, a wall of gray. You must not fail. Far below, the wind beaters readied their giant wings, their rock gas. The vents opened and the gyre gust swirled up until it reached me. I leapt into the maelstrom. Singers watched from the galleries as I swept around the gyre, seeking my prey. The challenger who had come so far and dared too much. The one who did not understand what singers were willing to sacrifice. I locked my wings in position and took the knife from its sheath on my arm. The wind kept pace with every move I made lifting me as I circled. 
The galleries rustled with whispers as I glimpsed a flash of white from the corner of my eye. The challenger, behind me. They must have clung to the wall below the, the council balcony until I leapt, then followed me out. Sneaky, just as they claimed the lawsbreaker would be, just like the lawsbreaker I had been. I could do a service for the singers ending this danger to the city, prove myself as soon as I got the challenger off my tail. An arrow arced wide past me, then clattered against the gyre wall. Their aim was off. The enclosed space and strange winds gave me an advantage. Still, I swallowed hard and tightened my grip. Hurry, Kirit. The windbeater's drums quickened, and I heard the wind whistle through the galleries. There was a drop coming. Another arrow seared far too close, the fletching scraping my ear. The bone point missed its mark, but I was wind bit already from the gyre's howl. The brush of the weapon stung my skin. By arching my back, I angled my wingtips and slowed my glide. The challenger hurtled over me into my wind shadow. I angled away as the challenger dropped like garbage spinning out of control. As they fought to find a stronger gust, I moved in above, looked for the best place to slash the challenger's wings, to end this quickly, to succeed and gain my birthright. I raised the knife. It glittered from the sun and spun as it split the air. But the challenger turned fast, shadow in wing, strong arms bent hard to the elbow hooks, fingers wrapped tight around a bow. We nearly collided, dark curls angry eyes. I spun away at the last minute, knowing the gyre helped keep me from dropping us both into the pits. But it was far too late. I'd seen his face, knew the shape of it from just one glance. Black hair, those eyes, his earnest look turned gaunt and scarred. My friend lived. He had challenged the singers. He'd threatened the city. I searched for a gust to take me higher so I could think. Not him, not this. I found none, no wind. The windbeaters stirred the gusts to drive us together again. Wing against shadow, arrow against knife, untried singer against her challenger, me against my best friend. My fight dissolved, crippled by relief at seeing him alive, but he, righted now and flying fast, knocked another arrow. Perhaps he hadn't realized who he fought. He wouldn't shoot, would he? I banked fast, trying to reach him, sheathed my knife. The galleries groaned in protest. My opponent's wings dipped and wobbled. He didn't know how to fly the gyre. He was tiring fast as well, but he'd held his bow horizontal, drew back the arrow. He looked up to aim as we circled. And when his eyes met mine, his hand wavered. I saw his mouth start to form my name. Then he clamped his lips shut. His fingers tightened on the bow. Ducking my head and bending my knees slightly, I dropped fast. The arrow hummed past me, disappearing into the gyre's shadows. I took hold of the wing grips and twisted into a sharp turn. The windbeaters saw my maneuver and stirred up gusts to add more force. I rocketed past him and circled again, locking my wings in fighting position. My fingers brushed the next knife hilt how could I even consider it? How could I not? This man was currently shooting at me, trying to kill me to win a challenge. The galleries erupted with stamping feet to match the windbeater's drums. 
What did I want? To be a singer, I had to defeat him. To be curate, I could not. I took a deep breath and swerved to avoid him, shouted as loud as I could over the roar of the gyre. What are you doing? He drew another arrow from his sleeve quiver. I thought you were dead. I could not stop myself. You might as well be, he answered, a singer. The way he said it warped across the wind. To me, the word sounded more like murderer. He found a fast-moving gust and tried to rise above me. I ducked beneath him and cut off his wind. When he wobbled and started to fall, I dodged out of the way. One last chance. We flew side by side for a moment, my, white, my right wing grazing the gallery wall. You don't have to do this. I have so much to tell you. If I could get him to drop his weapon and concede the challenge, then perhaps everything would be all right. The singers would punish him, but he might live, though they would certainly punish me. I know enough. Your singers lie, Kirit. They killed my father for their lies. He started to pull away, then leaned towards me instead, trying to drive me into the galleries and crush me. Your father stole secrets. He broke laws. I angled my wingtip until I slipped beneath his. White silk shuddering, battens shrieking. I held him there, then rolled hard, flipping his wing up in the process. He tottered, dropping the arrow, and I flew away straight. Maybe some laws need breaking, he shouted after me, writing himself. What secrets did my father die for? He pulled another arrow from his quiver. He only had a few left. The singers in the tears around us rose to their feet, angrily gesturing. On my next turn, I saw Rummel far above, looking down, his face still as bone. The realization hit me. He'd planned this. He wanted to test me to see if I was a true singer. I wove and dipped so that my opponent could not aim. My throat ached from the exertion of talking while flying in the gyre. The wind beaters accelerated their beats. Somewhere below, my father was among them. The gusts grew more fierce than I'd ever experienced in the gyre. The wind yanked at my hair, tearing it free. My friend's black curls formed a tangled nimbus around his head. They'd promised him answers if he won. What could I promise? A quick death without falling forever? Or I could lose. I could banish myself to the spire's depths by conceding. They would keep me alive, but I'd never see sky again. If he won, they had to answer his questions, but he did not know the right questions to ask. I did. If he conceded, then I could ask the questions, change things. We flew opposing courses now, sweeping past each other in tighter spirals. He looked for advantage. I sought a way out. <coughs> My initial relief at seeing him alive became anger. You don't know the truth. You have to give this up. No, the word was a sob. You can't win. Singers can't win. No, I am not a singer yet. But yes, I cannot lose. He whirled around, furious again. I thought you were dead, but you're not. You're strong. I nearly starved these months with the laws they gave me. Where are yours? He was crazed, yelling. I saw the chips hanging heavy on his wrists. His arms were pale past the wing straps. His hands gripped the bow's bow hard. He was tiring, too weak, but desperate. I didn't have much time. What could I do to shock him, to make him concede? I could tell him the truth. I could sing it. I cast my voice to carry on the drafts. 
I sang the rise to him, the real rise. For a moment, the galleries fell silent. Then a shout of outrage broke through the windbeater's drums. The swirl of wind, Rommel's voice, stop this. I continued to sing, hoped my opponent, would, my friend, would hear me, would listen. A voice on a nearby tier joined me, then another. My opponent's eyes grew wide as the words filled the gyre, and he heard the difference from what he'd always known as unassailable fact. This is why there are singers, to protect tower from tower. I didn't stop singing until he shot at me again, wildly, his last arrow nicking my wing. Kill me already, he screamed. He threw the bow. It spun in the air, hit the wall, and plummeted into the gyre. I heard a cheer from the galleries. His straps bit white against his shoulders where his robes had slipped. His face flushed deep red. Buoyed by the song, I circled in long arcs, looking for a way to knock him into the nets above the pens, to cut his wings open, to win without killing him. In the galleries, singers leaned forward to see better. But the fight had gone too slow for the wind beaters. I smelled the rock gas before I saw the balls of flame, heard them rise last of all. With a whoosh, one hand-sized ball flew up the tower, then another. Monsters! A gout flew too close to his face and rose out the top of the spire. I smelled singed hair. I could push him right into a rock gas ball and his wings would burn, but my friend would fall alive. I tried not to think about how Rummel would judge me for sparing him. I doubt it would be well. I twisted in the jumbled wind. I'm not trying to kill you. Shut up, Kirit. He drove for, dove for me, hands outstretched, trying to grapple my wings and drag us both down. We plummeted past gallery walls, carved with singers falling, wound round with flames. We were well down in the gyre now, too close to the novices and wind beaters throwing flaming rock gas. I fought my way to an updraft, hoping he would follow me, that he was strong enough to follow me. He did, barely, his pale wings filled with wind. I will tell you what I know, I said, but you must give up then. You must concede. Promise? He whistled, our long ago flight signal, agreement. I was about to break the spire's rules, but perhaps it would work. He would be left alive. I pointed down, spoke fast secrets, but I never got to finish. Two wind beaters began a new pattern. The gyre's wind spun me round and knocked me into my friend. My knife dragged across his wing. Over the roar of wind, the gallery screamed, and then the wind pulled us apart. I heard a gate open and braced myself for more wind. The wind, be wind beaters angled their wings anew, and I was borne up on a massive gust. A separate gust sucked my opponent towards the open gate. I reached for him, tried to hook his wings, but my fingers could not span the widening gap. He spun limp, his wings folding as he lost control and was flung into the wide open sky. But my wings filled. I was lifted by an opposing current. I'd won, or the wind beaters had. The challenger was defeated. The galleries began to sing, tradition, a second time through the rise, this time to welcome a new singer. Their song, which until that moment had been my song too, lifted higher, and the wind swept me up. I was truly theirs now. I was a killer. I knew no greater pain. I was a singer, marked with the death of my challenger. I was spire, locked within its walls no matter where I flew.
Thank you. Thank you. That was wonderful. Okay, we're going to take a 10-minute break, so have a drink, buy some books, have them signed, and come on back. Hello there. Hi. Welcome back. Shh. We're starting. Hello. Thank you. Welcome back to the second half. Um, our readers in December are C.S.E. Cooney and Sarah McCrary. Sarah McCrary is a new writer, I believe. You know her? Oh. Oh, okay. All right. Cool. Okay. That counts. It does. So, thanks for coming by. Um, I will introduce our next guest. Nathan Ballingrid is a two-time winner of the Shirley Jackson Award, most recently for his short story collection, North American Lake Monsters, which is for sale here. The collection was also shortlisted for the World Fantasy, British Fantasy, and Bram Stoker Awards. His stories have appeared in multiple years' best volumes, including the current editions of the Best Horror of the Year, Best New Horror, Year's Best Weird Fiction, and the inaugural Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy of the Year. His most recent work is The Visible Filth, a novella from This Is Horror, exclamation point. Please welcome Nathan Ballingrud. Thank you. Uh, thanks again uh, to Ellen and Matthew for inviting me out and for everyone for showing up. Uh, especially this hour of the night. Uh, I'm going to be reading from two scenes from a short story called The Atlas of Hell, which is in Ellen's latest best horror book. And um, yeah, I'll just get to it. He didn't even know he was dead. I had just shot this guy in the head, and he's still standing there giving me shit, telling me what a big badass he works for, telling me I'm going to be sorry I was born, you know blood pouring down his face. He can't even see anymore. It's in his goddamn eyes. So I look down at the gun in my hand, and I'm like, what the fuck, you know? Is this thing working or what? And I'm starting to think maybe this asshole's right. Maybe I just stepped into something over my head. I mean, I feel a twinge of real fear. My hair is standing up like a cartoon. So I look at the dude, and I say, lay down. You're dead. I shot you. There's a bourbon and ice sitting on the end table next to him. He takes a sip from it and puts it back down, placing it in its own wet ring. He's very precise about it. I guess he just had to be told, because as soon as I say it, boom, drops like a fucking tree. I don't know what he's expecting from me here. My leg is jumping up and down with nerves. I can't make it stop. I open my mouth to say something, but a nervous laugh spills out instead. He looks at me incredulously. Patrick is a big guy, not doughy like me, but there's muscle packed beneath all that flesh. He looks like fists of meat sewn together and given a suit of clothes. Why are you laughing? I don't know. I thought it was supposed to be a funny story. No, you demented fuck. That's not a funny story. What's the matter with you? It's pushing midnight, and we're sitting on a coffee-stained couch in a darkened corner of the grubby little bookstore I own in New Orleans, about a block off Magazine Street. My name is Jack Oleander. I keep a small studio apartment overhead, but when Patrick started banging on my door half an hour ago, I took him down here instead. I don't want him in my home. That he's here at all is a very bad sign. 
The bookstore doesn't pay the bills. The books and documents I sell in the back room take care of that. Few people know about the back room, but those that do pay very well indeed. Patrick's boss is one of those people. We parted under strange circumstances a year or so ago. I was never supposed to see him again. Patrick's presence here makes me afraid, and fear makes me reckless. Well, if it's not a funny story, then what kind of a story is it? Because we've been drinking here for 20 minutes, and you haven't mentioned business even once. If you want to trade war stories, it's going to have to wait for another time. He gives me a sour look and picks up his glass, peering into it as he swirls the ice around. He's always hated me, and I knew that his presence here pleased him no more than it did me. You don't make it easy to be your friend, he says. I didn't know we were friends. The muscles in his jaw clench. Look, you're wasting my time, Patrick. I know you're just the muscle, so maybe you don't understand this, but the work I do in the back room takes up a lot of energy. So sleep is valuable to me. You've sat on my couch and drunk my whiskey and burned away almost half an hour beating around the bush. I don't know how much more of this I can take. He looks at me. He has, that, he has his work face on now, the one a lot of guys see just before the lights go out. That's good. I want him in work mode. It makes him focus. The trick now, though, is to keep him on the shy side of violence. You have to play these guys like marionettes. I got pretty good at it back in the day. You want to watch that, he says. You want to watch that attitude. I come to you in friendship. I come to you in respect. This is bullshit, but whatever. It's time to settle him down. These macho types are such fragile little flowers. Hey, I'm sorry, really. I haven't been sleeping very well. I'm tired, and it makes me stupid. That's a bad trait, so wake up and listen to me. I told you that story for two reasons. One, to stop you from saying dumb shit like you just did. Make you remember who you're dealing with. I can see it didn't work. I can see maybe I was being too subtle. Patrick, really, I, if you interrupt me again, I will break your right hand. The second reason I told you that story is to let you know that I've seen some crazy things in my life, so when I tell you this new thing scares the shit out of me, maybe you listen to what the fuck I'm saying. He stops there, staring hard at me. After a couple of seconds, th seconds of this, I figure it's okay to talk. You have my full attention. This is from Eugene? You know this is from Eugene. Why else would I drag myself over here? Patrick, I wish you'd relax. I'm sorry I made you mad. You want another drink? Let me pour you another drink. I can see the rage coiling in his eyes. I'm starting to think maybe I pushed him too hard. But, but then he settles back onto the couch, and a smile settles over his face. It doesn't look natural there. Jesus, you have a mouth. How does a guy like you get away with having a mouth like that? He shakes the ice in his, hand, in his glass. Yeah, go ahead. Pour me another one. We'll smoke a peace pipe. I pour more for us both. He slugs it back in one deep swallow and holds his glass out for more. I give it to him. He seems to be relaxing. All right, okay. There's this guy. Creepy little grifter named Tobias George. He's one of those little vermin, always crawling through the city, getting into shit, fucking up his own life. You don't even notice these guys. You know how it is. I do. I also know the name, but I don't tell him that. Only reason we know about him at all is because sometimes he'll run a little scheme of his own, kick a percentage back to Eugene. It's all good. Well, one day this prick catches a case of ambition. He robs one of Eugene's poker games, makes off with a lot of money. Suicidal. Who knows what got into the guy? Some big dream climbed up his butt and opened him up like an umbrella. We go hunting for him, but he disappears. We get word he went out, he went farther south, disappeared into the bayou. like. 
not Port Fouchon or some shit, but literally on a goddamn swoop, on a goddamn boat into the swamp. Eugene is pissed, and you know how he is. He jumps and shouts for a few days, but eventually he says, fuck it. We're not going to wrestle alligators with this guy. After a while, we just figured he died out there, you know. But he didn't. That he did not. We catch wind of him a few months later. He's in a whole new ball game. He's selling artifacts pulled from hell. He's making a lot of money doing it. It's another scam, I say, knowing full well that it isn't. It's not. How do you know? Don't worry about it. We know. A guy owes you money and won't pay? That sounds more like your thing than mine, Patrick. Yeah, don't worry about that either. I got it covered when the time comes. I won't go into the details because they don't matter, but what it comes down to is that Eugene wants his own way into the game. Once this punk is put in the ground, he wants to keep the market alive. We happen to know Tobias has a book that he uses for this setup, an atlas that tells him how to access this shit. We want it. We want to know how it works. And that's your thing, Jack. I feel something cold spill through my gut. That's, that's not the deal we have. What can I tell you? No, I told... My throat is dry. My leg is bouncing again. Eugene told me we were through. He told me that. He's breaking his promise. That mouth again. Patrick finishes his drink and stands. Come on, you can tell him that yourself. See how it goes over. Now? It's the middle of the night. Don't worry, you won't be redisturbing him. He don't sleep too well lately, either. So I'm going to skip the next scene, which is essentially Eugene convincing... Jack, that he's got to go out there and get this book. Patrick is going to go with him. We experience dawn as a rising heat and a slow bleed of light through the cypress and the Spanish moss, riding in an airboat through the swamp a good 30 miles south of New Orleans. Patrick, Patrick and I are riding up front while an old man more leather than flesh guides us along some unseeable path. Our progress stirs movement from the local fauna, snakes, turtles, muskrats, and I'm constantly jumping at some heavy splash. I imagine a score of alligators gliding through the water beneath us, tracking our movement with yellow, saurian eyes. The airboat wheels around a copse of trees into a watery clearing, and I half expect to see a brontosaurus waiting in the shallows. Instead, I see a row of huge, bobbing purple flowers, each with a bleached human face in the center, mouths gaping, and eyes palely blind. The sight of them shocks me into silence. Our guide fixes his stare on the horizon, refusing even to acknowledge anything out of the ordinary. Eyes perch along the tops of reeds. Great kites of flesh stretch between tree limbs. One catches a mild breeze from our passage and, and skates serenely through the air, coming at last to a gentle landing on the water where it folds in on itself and sinks into the murk. Our guide points and I see a shack, a small single-room architectural catastrophe perched on the dubious shore and extending over the water on short stilts. A skiff is tied to a front porch which doubles as a small dock. It seems to be the only method of travel to or from the place. A filthy rebel flag hangs over the entrance in lieu of a door. At the moment, it's pulled to the side, and a man I assume is Tobias George is standing there, naked but for a pair of shorts that hang precariously from his narrow hips. He's all bone and gristle. His face tells me nothing as we glide in toward the dock. He watches as we disembark. I tell the guide, you wait right here. The guide nods shutting down the engine and fishing a pack of smokes from his shirt. What are you guys doing here? Tobias says. He hasn't looked at me once, but he can't peel his gaze from Patrick. He knows what Patrick's all about. 
Tobias, you crazy bastard, what the hell do you think you're doing? Tobias turns around and goes back inside, the rebel flag falling close behind him. Come on in, I guess. We follow him inside where it's even hotter. The air doesn't move in here, probably hasn't moved in 20 years, and it carries the sharp tang of marijuana. Dust motes hang suspended in spears of light coming in through a window covered over in ratty, bug-smeared plastic. The room is barely furnished. There's a single mattress pushed against the wall to our left, a cheap collapsible table with a plastic folding chair and a chest of drawers. Next to the bed is a camping cooker with a little sauce pot and some cans of Sterno. On the table is a small pile of dull green buds with some rolling papers and a zippo. There's a door flush against the back wall. I take a few steps in the direction and I can tell right away that there's some bad news behind it. The air spoils and I get close, coating the back of my throat with a greasy, evil film that feels like it seeps right into the meat. Violent fantasies sprout along my cortex like a little vine of tumors. I try to keep my face still. Stay on that side of the room, Patrick, I say. I don't need him feeling this. What? Why? Trust me, this is why you brought me. Tobias casts a glance at me now, finally sensing some purpose behind my presence. He's good, though. I still can't figure his reaction. Y'all here to kill me? He says. Patrick already has his gun in his hand. It's pointed at the floor. His eyes are fixed on Tobias, and he seems to be weighing something in his mind. I can tell that whatever is behind that door is already working its influence on him. It has its grubby little fingers in his brains, pulling dark things out of it. That depends on you, he says. Eugene wants to talk to you. Yeah, that's not going to happen. The violence in this room is alive and crawling. I realize suddenly why he stays stoned. I figure it's time we got to the point. We want the book, Tobias. What? Who are you? He looks at Patrick. What's he talking about? You know what he's talking about. Go get the book. There is no book. He looks genuinely bewildered, and that worries me. I don't know if I can go back to Eugene without a book. I'm about to ask him what's in the back room when I hear a creak in the wood beyond the hanging flag and someone pulls it aside, flooding the shack with light. I spin around and Patrick already has his gun raised, looking spooked. The man standing in the doorway is framed by the sun, a negative space. He is tall and slender, his hair like a spray of light around his head. I think for a moment that I can smell it burning. He steps into the shack and you can tell there's something wrong with him, though it's hard to figure just what. Some malformation of the aura telegraphing a warning blast straight to the root of my brain. To look at him as he steps into the shack and trades direct sunlight for the filtered illumination shared by the rest of us, he seems tired and gaunt, but ultimately not unlike any other poverty-wrapped country boy, and yet my skin ripples at his approach. I feel my lip curl, and I have to kind of concentrate to keep the revulsion from my face. Toby, he says. His voice is young and uninflected, normal. I think my brother's on his way back. Who are these guys? Hey, Johnny, Tobias says, looking at him over my shoulder. He's plainly nervous now, and although his focus, just stay, his focus stays on Johnny, his attention seems to radiate in all directions, like a man wondering where the next hit is coming from. I could have told him that. Fear turns into meanness in a guy like Patrick, and he reacts according to the dictates of his kind. He shoots. It's one shot, quick and clean. Patrick is a professional. The sound of the gun concusses the air in the little shack, and the bullet passes through Johnny's skull, before we even have time to flinch at the noise. I blink. I can't hear anything beyond a high-pitched whine. I see Patrick standing still, looking down the length of his raised arm with a flat, dead expression. It's his true face. 
I see Tobias drop to one knee, his hand over his ears and his mouth working as though he's shouting something. And I see Johnny, too, stand, still standing in the doorway, as unmoved by the bullets passed through his skull as though it had been nothing more than a disappointing argument. Dark clots of brain meat are splashed across the flag behind him. He looks from Patrick to Tobias, and when he speaks, I can barely hear him above the ringing in my head. What should I do, he says. I step forward and gently push Patrick's arm down. Are you shitting me? He says, staring at Johnny. Patrick, I say. Am I fucking cursed? Is that it? I shot you in the face. The bullet hole is a dime-sized wound in Johnny's right cheekbone. It leaks a single thread of blood. You're an asshole, he says. <laughs> Tobias gets back to his feet, his arms stretched out to either side like he's trying to separate two, two imaginary boxers. Will you just relax? Jesus Christ. He guides Johnny to the little bed and sits him down where he brushes the blonde hair out of his face and inspects the bullet hole. Then he cranes his head around to examine the damage to the exit wound. God damn it, he says. Johnny puts his own hand back there. Oh man, he says. I take a look. The whole back of his head is gone. Now it's just a red bowl of spilled gore. What looks like little blowing cinders are embedded in this mess, sending up coils of smoke. Patrick, I say, just be cool. <laughs> he's still in a fog you can see him trying to arrange things in his head I need to kill them Jack I need to I never felt it like this before what's happening here Tobias pipes up I had a job for this guy I'll end up at the fry pit now what Tobias I need you to shut up I say keeping my eyes on Patrick Patrick are you hearing me it's taking a huge effort to maintain my own composure I have an image of wresting the gun from his hand and hitting him with it until his skull breaks. Only the absolute impossibility of it keeps me from trying. My question causes the shutters to close in his eyes. Whatever tatter of human impulse stirred him to try to explain himself to me, to grope for reason and miss the bloody carnage boiling in his head, is subsumed again in the dull professional menace. Don't talk to me like that. I'm not a goddamn kid. I turn to the others. The bed is now awash in blood. Tobias is working earnestly to mitigate the damage back there, but I can't imagine what it is he thinks he can do. Brain matter is gathered in a clump behind him. He seems to be scooping everything out. Johnny sits there forlornly, shoulders slumped. I thought it would be better out here, he said. Shit never ends. The Atlas, I say. Fuck yourself, Tobias says. I stride toward the closed door. If there's anything I need, need to know before I open it, I guess I'll just find out the hard way. A hot pulse of emotion blasts out at me as I touch the handle. Fear, rage, a lust for carnage. It's overriding any sense of self-preservation I might have had. I wonder if a fire will pour through the door when it's opened. A furnace exhalation and engulf us all. I find myself hoping for it. Tobias shouts at me, Don't! I pull it open. A charred skull, oily smoke coiling from its fissures, is propped on a stool in an otherwise bare room no bigger than a closet. Black mold has grown over the stool. It is creeping up the walls. A live current jolts my brain. Time dislocates, jumping seconds like an old record, and the world moves in jerky stop-motion lurches. A language is seeping from the skull, a viscous, cracked sound like breaking bones in molten rock. My eyes sting, and I squeeze them shut. The skin on my face blisters. Shut it! Shut the door! Tobias is screaming, but whatever he's saying has no relation to me. It's as though I'm watching a play. Blood is leaking from his eyes. Patrick is grinning widely, his own eyes like bloody headlamps. 
He's violently twisting his own right ear, working it like an apple stem. Johnny is sitting quietly, holding his gathered brains in his hands, rocking back and forth like an unhappy child. My upper arms are hurting, and it takes me a minute to realize that I'm gouging with my own fingernails. I can't make myself stop. Outside, a sound rolls across the swamp like a foghorn, a deep, answering bellow to the language of hell spilling from the closet. Tobias lunges past me and slams the door shut, immediately muffling the skull's effect. I stagger toward the chair, but fall down hard before I make it, banging my shoulder against the table and knocking Tobias's drug paraphernalia all over the floor. Patrick makes a sound, half gasp and half sob, and leans back against the wall, cradling his savage ear. He's digging the heel of his hand into his right eye like he's trying to rub something out of it. What the fuck was that? I think it's me who says that. Right now I can't be sure. That's your goddamn atlas, you prick, Tobias says. He comes over to where I am and drops to the floor, scooping up the scattered buds and some papers. He begins to assemble a joint. His hands are shaking badly, so this takes him doing. A skull? The book is a skull? It's a tongue inside the skull, technically. What the Christ? Just shut up a minute. He finishes the joint, lights it, takes a long, deep pull, and passes it over to me. For one surreal moment, I feel like we're college buddies, sitting in a dorm. It's like there's not a scorched, muttering skull in the next room, corroding the air around it. It's like there's not a man with a blown-out head moping quietly on the bed. <laughs> I start to laugh, but I haven't even had a toke. He exhales explosively, the sweet smoke filling the air between us. Take it, man. I'm serious. Trust me. So I do. Almost immediately, I feel an easing of the pressure in the room. The crackle of violent impulse, which I had ceased to even recognize, abated to a low thrum. My internal gauge ticked back down to highly, it ticks back down to highly frightened, which, in comparison to a moment before, feels like a monastic peace. I gesture for Patrick to do the same. No, I don't pollute my body with that shit. He's touching his ear gingerly, trying to assess the damage. Patrick, last night you single-handedly killed half a bottle of 90-proof bourbon. Let's have some perspective here. He snatches it from me and drags it hard on it, coughing it all back out so violently that I think I'm that I think he might throw up. I notice that Johnny's head seems to be changing shape. The shattered bone around the exit wound is smoothed over and extended upward an inch or so, like something growing. A tiny twig of bone has likewise extended from the bullet wound beneath his eye. We need to get out of here, I say. That thing is pretty much a live feed to hell. We can't handle it. It's time to go. We're taking it with us, Patrick says. No, no, we're not. Not up for debate, Jack. I'm not riding with that thing. If you take it, you're going back alone. Patrick nods, takes another pull from the joint, handling it, handling it much better this time. He passes it back to me. Okay, but you gotta know that I'm leaving this place empty. You understand me, right? I don't at first. It takes me a second. You can't be serious. You're gonna kill me? Make up your mind. God damn it, Patrick, that doesn't make any sense. Look, Jack, I like you. You're weak and you're a coward, but you can't help those things. I would rather you come with me, but I can't leave this place with anybody in it. Tobias doesn't seem to be paying attention. He's leaning back against the bed, new joint rolled up and kept all to himself. I can't tell if he's resigned to his own death or if he's so far away he doesn't even know it's being discussed. I can't think of anything to say. Maybe there isn't anything more to, to be said. Maybe language is over. I still feel the skull's muted influence crawling through my brain, 
It craves the bullet. I anticipate the explosion of the gun with a terrible relish. The bellow from the swamp sounds again. It's huge and deep, like the ululating call of a mountain. It just keeps on going. Johnny smiles. Brother's home, he says. Patrick looks toward the flag-covered doorway. What? Tobias holds his hand aloft, finger extended, announcing his intention to orate. His eyelids are heavy. The joint he'd made for himself is spent. There's a hell monster outside. Did I forget to tell you? <laughs> I start to laugh. I can't stop myself. It doesn't feel good. Johnny smiles at me, mistaking my laughter for something else. It showed up the same time I did. Toby calls it my brother. He sounds wistful. Patrick uses the gun barrel to open the flag a few inches. He peers outside for a few moments, then lets the fall closed again. He looks at me. We're stuck. The boat's gone. What? You left us? Well, it's mostly gone. I take a look for myself. The airboat is a listing heap of scrap metal. The cage around its huge propeller, a tangled bird's nest. A guy's arm, still connected to a hunk of his torso, rests on the deck in a black puddle. The thing that did this is swimming in a lazy arc some distance away, trackable by the rolling surge of water it creates as it trawls along. Judging by the size of its wake, it's at least as big as a city bus. It breaches the surface once, exposing a mottled gray hide and an anemone-like thistle of eye stalks lifting skyward. The thing barrel rolls until a deep black fissure emerges, and from this separated tear comes that stone-cracking bellow, the language of deep earth that curdles something inside me, springs tears to my eyes, and brings me hard to my knees. I scramble weakly away from the door. Patrick is watching me with a sad, desperate hope, his intent to murder someone momentarily forgotten, as though by some trick known only to me this thing might be banished back to its home, as though I might fix the scar that Tobias George, that mewling, incompetent little thief, is cut into the world. I cannot fix this. There is no fixing this. Behind us both, locked in this little room, the skull cooks the air. I'll stop right there. out there you can have your book signed by the authors and I hope you will have that and have another drink and come back next month. Thank you. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always Thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.